It's so wonderful to be here this morning. And it's great to see so many of you here. I, I got here quite late because I planned my trip. And then there seemed to be a ghost law on the highway. I think uh, as soon as it rains, everybody forgets how to drive. So um, that's my experience in Cape Town anyway. But it's wonderful to be here. It's been a while since I was here. It has been a while. But, uh, oh, there we go. Hi, hey. And uh, I do need to apologize to the AV team because uh, I did give them some scriptures for the preach I'd prepped and then during worship I just felt the Lord say, don't preach that, preach something completely different. So, <laughs> so we'll just have to try and keep up. Even I don't know what scriptures I'm going to use yet. So, um, But it was just so wonderful in, in worship that we, um, we spent so much time just focusing on the person of Jesus and uh, thanking him for what he did. But it's like, I don't know about you, but the words thank you are a bit lame really, aren't they? It's like somebody, you know, somebody brings you, you know, or gives you a sweetie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> somebody pours you a drink. Thank you. Somebody dies for you. Oh, thank you. You know, it's interesting, in, in the Hebrew language, it's an ancient language, and, and the words developed over time, so you'll often hear people talk about the root meaning of a word, um, because um, even in English, what happens is you've got a word, and, and um, it derives from somewhere, and it changes meaning over time, and it develops its meaning. So, for example, the word enthusiastic uh, comes out of Greek, and it basically means en, which is in, theos, God. So enthusiasm is like being in God. Yeah? So, but we, it's not what it means now, but that was the root of it. And in ancient Hebrew, as before the language had developed, there was no word for thank you. Now, you might think that's something of an inconvenience. Somebody does something for you and you say, <laughs> Later, they had a word that meant thank you. But the root of that, where it came from, it actually meant to speak the name of somebody. And so the concept was this. If Mark did something amazing for me, I didn't have a word to say thank you. What I would do, I would speak the name of Mark wherever I went. So he would do something for me, and I would say, Hey, guys, that Mark guy is awesome. Let me tell you what he did for me. And that concept of speaking the name of is eventually where they got thank you or thanks. And so... For me, there's a wonderful lesson in there. How can I thank Jesus for what he did? The words ring hollow, but I can speak the name of. I can say, hey, let me tell you about this guy who did something awesome for me. Let me tell you about this guy I know. And he's so awesome. What he did for me, he can do for you. 
And the best way we can thank him for his sacrifice is to speak his name. How many of you were at the gathering we had up at... Uh, it was awesome, wasn't it? The first time in two years we've, we've kind of been together, about nearly, I think, 2,200 of us were in that field that, that day. And Andrew shared on, on just letting your light shine. And that's what it is when we say, let me tell you about Jesus. And we don't have to have incredible theology. We don't have to know a hundred Bible verses. We don't have to know what the atonement is and justification, sanctification, glorification, expiation, propitiation, constipation, <laughs> consternation. One of my favorite stories is the blind man that Jesus heals. And the Pharisees and the rulers pull him in to question him because they, they want to get Jesus into trouble. So they're asking him all these troubles, uh, all these questions like, who was this guy and who did he claim to be and when did he do it and how did he do it? And, and, and they're asking him all the, and they're bombarding him with all these theological questions because they want to they wanna catch Jesus doing something he shouldn't have done. Um, futile task, obviously, but that's what they were trying. And eventually, this man who's been healed of blindness, he says, I don't know the answers to your questions. All I know is that I was blind, and now I see. That's all we need to know. And that's all we need to be able to share with somebody. And people come up with all these things like dinosaurs and the age of the earth, and where did evil come from, and did Adam have a belly button, and all of these complicated questions and we can we can spend hours watching apologetics videos and and things like that but ultimately you know one of the things I, I will often do when I'm speaking to somebody and getting into all these complicated so you know that's a really interesting question about dinosaurs it's a really interesting question about the age of the earth but you know what a more important question is who is Jesus you answer that question and all the other questions make sense. And I want to bring it back to him. But you know, you cannot ever persuade somebody into the kingdom. You can't use your logic. Uh, I was a salesman before, before I was working for the church, and I was a good salesman. I was very successful. I could sell almost anything to anybody. But I can't persuade somebody to get saved. I can speak and I can ask. But only Jesus can do the saving. An analogy, this, and it's an imperfect analogy, is this, that if I'm speaking to a blind man, I can shine a torch. But it doesn't matter where I shine the torch unless somebody miraculously opens his eyes. And so we are the light shiners. We can shine the light, but we have to trust that as we shine the light, Jesus opens blind eyes, spiritually speaking, so that people see the truth. Because this salvation doesn't come through intellect or ability. It comes from revelation. You know, I, I, I used to think I was the worst evangelist in the world. I'd spend half an hour talking to an atheist and feel I was backsliding rather than him getting saved. 
How many feel like that sometimes? How many times I've failed? And it's like I'd speak to people and they wouldn't get saved. And I'd speak to somebody else and they wouldn't get saved. And I thought, I'm wasting my time. I'm wasting my time. And then I read an interesting statistic which said that on average, a person is confronted with the gospel six times before they get saved. And so I changed my way of thinking. And I'd speak to somebody and they wouldn't respond. I'd go, number four. And maybe I was. And then somebody brings them to church, somebody preaches, they stick their hand up and he goes, I'm an evangelist. Yeah, but you wouldn't have got it if I hadn't been number four. (laughs) And if somebody else hadn't been number three. You see, if you're sharing the gospel, if you're shining your light, it's not in vain. But we need to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I love the scripture in John 14, where Jesus is talking to his disciples just before he's about to be arrested and crucified. And he's basically saying goodbye to them. And he's saying, don't be worried. Don't let your heart be troubled, he says in verse 1. He's saying, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Like, but Jesus, what you're going away? We we said we'd follow you, but we don't know where you're going. How do we follow you? And in John fourteen, from verse fourteen, he said, "You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it." And if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And this is a beautiful passage. He's saying, I'm going away. But if you ask, I will send to you another counselor. And that phrase, another counselor, is a powerful statement. If you look in the Greek, the Greek is alos parakletos. I'm just saying that to sound clever, but anybody can look it up on Google, so not really that clever. But parakletos or paraclete has a whole bunch of meanings. And here it's... it's, um, rendered counselor, but it can be a counselor, an advisor, a comforter, an encourager. Even in the Olympics, in the marathon, as they'd run the marathon and they came into the stadium, and that stadium, the ruins of that stadium are still there. I was, I was there a few years ago, stood on the starting line and thought, nah. But, <laughs> but as they came into the stadium at the end of the marathon and they're exhausted, They were allowed to have somebody who would come alongside them and run alongside them and say, come on, just a little bit more to go. You can do it. You can run it. You can can finish the race. Come on, you can do it. And that person, that personal cheerleader was a paraclete. And so Jesus is saying, I'll send you this guy. I will send you this this person to encourage you, to help you finish the race, to, to comfort to guide, to lead you into truth, to counsel you. 
And it's interesting that the word alos there, or another counselor, there's two Greek words you can use for another. Okay, there's alos and heteros. So the best way I can explain this is if I take a drink of water, I've had some water. Now, if I want another drink, and I say I want another drink, and I use the word heteros, it means I want a different kind of drink. So give me some Coca-Cola or whatever. If I use alos and say I want another drink, alos, it means another of exactly the same kind. And so what Jesus was saying is, I will send you this counselor, this encourager, this guide, this comforter, this strengthener, who is exactly like me. He will be to you everything I've been. And so, you know, I've heard Christians say, oh, I wish I was one of the disciples. And what with Jesus for three and a half years? I go, we've, we've got something better. We've got Jesus living within us. We've got his spirit within us. And his spirit is everything to us that he was to his disciples. He's the one who will guide us all into all truth. He's the one who will empower us. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and working in you. I thought somebody would get excited by that. but <laughs> And so when we're sharing the gospel... We don't do it simply in our own effort, with our own wisdom, with our own words. But we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit who reveals truth and opens blind blind eyes. But we can only share what we've got. When Peter and John are walking into the temple at the beautiful gate, there's a, a beggar, a lame beggar, and he says, please give us money. And they said, we can't give you money, we've not got any. But what we do have, we give to you. People are in great need at the moment. Financial need, relational need, lockdown, just separated people, isolated people. And just when people thought it was getting back to normal, then all of a sudden we've got this news and people are just... People are looking for hope. And we've got the hope but we can't give what we don't have. And so scripture tells us, one, that when we come to Christ, his spirit is within us, but then it urges us to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that's an ongoing, imperceptible thing. It's like slowly slowly filling a cup. You, You can hardly notice it rising. Or it's like a child growing up. You know, when the child lives with you, you don't see any growth. But, you know, if, if you don't see them for three months, you suddenly look and you go, where did you come from? You know, it's like, so there's that gradual imperceptible growth, which is real all the same. But then there's also times where sudden, experiential, powerful, impactful, uh, just kind of these massive downloads of the Holy Spirit. It's almost like sometimes it's a drizzle, sometimes it's a downpour. But we should be a people who are hungry to receive as much of the, the Holy Spirit as we possibly can for him to flow through us. And I want to talk to us about how the Holy Spirit changes us 
and empowers us to be his witnesses and be his representatives in, the, in this world and how we can effectively be those who thank him by speaking of his name. And there's three main ways I want to talk about how the Holy Spirit transforms us. And the first, and I've alliter I'll alliterate it so it's easy to remember. The first point, he takes us from famine to fruitfulness. In Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And I love the fact that fruit there is singular. The fruit, singular, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those, those nine elements that are all part of that same fruit, that something of a Christ-likeness and a fruitfulness will rise within us. And when we're faithful to Christ, there's always a fruitfulness. You know, when, we, when the young, young boy came to him with his loaves and fishes, he was faithful. He said, there's no way this is going to do the job, but I'll bring you my little bit. And God multiplied it. And the parable of the talents, whatever he gave, those who were faithful multiplied. And whatever God has given you, it, even if it's a spiritual gift, prophecy or wisdom or service or toilet cleaning, whatever it is, I think toilet cleaning is a very important spiritual gift. Cleaning the toilets is more important than preaching. You know why? Because if you're a visitor and you visit church, and the preaching stinks, you might give it another chance. But if you come in the toilet stink, you say, I'll never go in there again. <laughs> it's true, right? Our service to one another is a spiritual gift, just as much as preaching or prophesying. But whatever your gift is, you come, and God will multiply it and make it fruitful. God is in the fruitfulness business. And some of you may say, I have nothing to offer. My life is a famine. How many of you feel like you've been living in a desert? place yeah ever yeah it's like there's just no fruitfulness around you well sometimes God takes us through a desert but he doesn't call us to live in a desert and he takes us through a desert sometimes because then we really appreciate the water that he provides but God is the in the business of of making something out of nothing and bringing fruitfulness out of famine. Right at the very beginning of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the act of creating something out of nothing, the Holy Spirit was present. And that word of hovering is very similar to, in concept to the word used in the New Testament where we read that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceived there was nothing in her womb and then there was life in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit and we all have a spiritual womb do you know that there's all there's something in us that God wants to impregnate and plant life in us yes guys you have a womb as well it's just that ladies have a womb with a view Sorry, did I really say that? You have to. <laughs> but God wants to come and he wants to deposit life in you where there is no life. And then he wants to bring it to fruition. He wants to grow it and enlarge it, whatever it is. And so we just need to come to him 
empty-handed. If, that's, if we've got nothing, we come to him empty-handed. If we've got five loaves and two fishes, if we've got whatever it is we've got, whatever little, we come to him and we say, this is yours. And if we're faithful, he will multiply. And the Spirit of God brings fruitfulness where there was famine. If your life seems like a famine right now, if it feels like a desert, if it feels like there's no fruitfulness, you can work harder and harder. Or you can get on your knees and access the Holy Spirit. Say, God, bring fruitfulness to my life. That's what he's in the business of doing. The second way in which he transforms us and changes us and equips us for this, this incredible purpose and task that he's got for us is he takes us from fear to faith. How many of you get scared about sharing the gospel? Come on. They'll hate me, they'll reject me, they'll ridicule me. You know, when I was 12 years old, I went on a school camp, and I can still picture the day before I left, my mum was ironing my my clothes, and uh, I had a pair of shorts, and on the back pocket was a, was a, um, a patch that said, Jesus sets you free. And she said, do you want me to take this off your shorts before you leave? And I'm thinking, why would I take that off my shorts? Why are you asking that? It was just a silly question to me. If I'd have known then what I knew two weeks later, I might have caved and said yes. Because I got to the camp with about, I don't know, 100 kids, something like that. They saw this badge on my shorts. And from morning to night, every day for a week, I was mocked, I was ridiculed, I was isolated, I was rejected. After about a week, I was stood on my own, as I had been all week, one night in front of the campfire. And two older kids came, grabbed me, took out a knife and said, bow down in front of this fire and worship Satan or we'll knife you. And there's a little 12-year-old me thinking, what do I do? I'm not a very brave person. You know, people who say, bring on martyrdom. No, I'd rather end up dying in bed, to be honest. I really would. (laughs) You know, when I talk about spiritual gifts, this is what I normally say to people. If you're not sure what your your spiritual gift is, experiment. Try it out. Experiment with all the spiritual gifts, except the gift of martyrdom. Bit dodgy experimenting with that. That's a a one-shot deal. But I was petrified. And I was tempted to like just like kneel and pre- like I'm not really doing it. It doesn't mean anything. But something in me said, no, you can't. And it was the Holy Spirit speaking to me and strengthening me in my time of need. It wasn't my bravery. It was the faith, the supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. But in order to experience that, You've got to be in a situation where otherwise you'd be scared spitless. 
If you're not going to try the impossible, if you're too scared to try, you're not going to see that. You don't need faith for the possible. So a quick survey. I've done this before. I don't know if I've done it here. How many people here have raised somebody from the dead? Okay. How many of you would love to raise somebody from the dead? Okay. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up because I want to see. Okay. Of those who've got your hands up, keep your hands up if you've ever actually prayed for a dead person to come alive. Well, therein lies the problem for most of you. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. How many of you have never led anybody to the Lord? You don't have to stick your hand up for that. Okay, if you haven't, how many people have you spoken to? Yeah? And if you say, I've spoken to 100 people and none of them come to the Lord, that's okay, you were number four 100 times. But we need to dare to try the impossible. We need to be moved from fear to faith. One of my great heroes is Peter. Peter the arrogant. When Jesus says, listen, all, all of you are going to betray me. All of you are going to disown me. All of you are going to run away. And Peter says, yeah, they might, but not me. I believe what you're saying about those guys, Lord. Yeah, I can see it. Bunch of cowards. But me, I made a sterner stuff. I, I, I won't betray you. I won't deny you. And Jesus said, before the cock crows, tonight, you will deny me three times. And that's what happens. Jesus is arrested. And Peter starts all brave, you know, with his sword, chopping off an ear. Uh, one of the Pharisees bent down and said, what's this here? <laughs> His servant said, what? <laughs> he started brave, but Jesus was arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin, and he was... He was questioned and he was threatened and all of Peter's bravado melted away and he denied Christ once and he denied Christ twice and then the third time it was a servant girl that asked him and he didn't even have the guts to stand up for Jesus in front of a servant girl who had no power no influence no ability to hurt him still he denied Christ it says, as he denied him a third time, the cock crawled, and Jesus looked at him. So Jesus, he's, he's, in, he's being bombarded with questions. He's having his beard plucked. He's, he's, he's been... And in the midst of that, he looks at Peter. Now, I don't know for sure what that look was. But I've got a pretty good idea. I don't think it was a look of anger. I'm pretty sure it wasn't told you so. I think what Jesus did was look with love and compassion 
and would be trying to signal with everything in his eyes to say, Peter, do you remember? Do you remember everything I taught you about forgiveness? And so this, this Peter who runs away denies Christ three times and goes back to fishing. He's restored by Jesus. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in power upon Peter. And Peter gets up and starts preaching in front of thousands. And 3,000 people get saved in a day because he fearlessly preaches. Years later, as an old man, something that Jesus prophesied over him, Peter, the church history, this isn't in scripture, this, this part of the story, but it's in church history. He'd been in Rome, and he, his disciples came and said, listen, Peter, Caesar's out to get you. He's, he's out to grab you and kill you. You better flee. So he grabs his few things, and he started leaving Rome. He, he, was, he was running away. And the story goes that as he was leaving Rome, he had a vision of Jesus walking into Rome. And he asked, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified again. And by that, Peter understood. This is the moment that Jesus had prophesied. And he turned around and went back into Rome because Jesus said, I'm telling you, this is the death you will have by which you will glorify me. And he went and like his Lord and Savior, allowed himself to be arrested. And they took him and they said, we're going to crucify you. You call yourself a Christian and your Messiah, your Jesus, your Yeshua was, was killed on a cross. We're going to kill you on a cross as well. And he said, no, I am not worthy to be killed in the manner of my Lord and Savior. And so as a cruel joke, they crucified him upside down. This same Peter who couldn't even stand up to a servant girl could stand up in the face of death. He moved from fear to faith. We're afraid of silly things. We really are. But if we know Jesus lives and his spirit within us, we have no need to fear. What's the old hymn? Because he lives... I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know, yes, I know, he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. What is there to fear? And I look forward and I really do not like the prospect of prison. I'd rather move to like Sweden or somewhere if I'm going to get arrested for my faith than Cape Town. The prisons are much nicer there. <laughs> I don't want to be killed. I, I, I'm not brave enough to, but I do trust my Savior. And I do trust the Spirit of God to deposit in me that gift of faith when it's most needed. But if he's never needed, because I won't step out and try the impossible, then what? Don't let fear hold you back. And then the third way he changes us. 
and empowers us and transforms us. He changes us from failures, from failure to function. He has a habit of choosing failures. He has a habit of choosing nobodies. He has a habit of choosing the weak and the foolish things. I love the story of Moses. Moses, who grows up with all the riches and privileges and education and power of Pharaoh's household. He's a real somebody. He knows he's a Hebrew, but, you know, just a little bit better. He's like Hebrew plus. But inside of him, there must have been this compassion and this identification with his people and this germ of a concept that somehow he had a desire to see his people freed from slavery and captivity. And so one day, he's walking around looking at all his brothers in slavery while he's in all his riches, and he sees an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews. And so he, he applies the fivefold ministry. And kills the Egyptian. In his own strength, in his own ability, in his own efforts to try and free his people. And he's an abject failure and ends up running off into the desert to look after a few scraggly sheep. And he was approximately 40 years old when that happened. So for 40 years he'd grown up thinking, I am somebody. And then he spends 40 years in a desert figuring out he was an absolute nobody. And he thinks he's a nobody to such an extent that when the Lord calls him in the burning bush and he says, I'm calling you. And by the way, this is the calling that you have. It's not just a calling for Moses. I'm calling you to bring my people out of captivity. Do you know that's a calling you have in the Lord? To take people out of captivity, out of slavery to sin, and into the promised land. There's a burning bush and everything. Audible voice. I mean, like, if you want a calling of God, if, if you had a burning bush and an audible voice, you'd do it straight away, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Trumpets, chariots, angels, you know. Just confirm it one more time, Lord. But Moses gets all that and the Lord speaks to him and commissions him and says, this is what I want you to do. And five times, five times Moses tries to get out of it. He says, I, I don't know your name. No, first of all, he says, who am I? I'm a nobody. Then he says, who are you? Then he says, what if they don't believe my message? And then he says, well, even if I've got a message and it's believable, my lips don't work. I stutter. I, I can't speak. And then he says, please send somebody else. That's how much of a nobody he'd become. And by the time he's up to his fifth excuse and he says, please send somebody else, says the Lord's anger began to burn against him. And I think Moses got the message and said, I'm scared, but I'll do it. And at 80 years old, he starts to walk in obedience. So if you're 80 and under, you definitely know you can be called by God still, right? If you're over 80, you can still be called by God. That's not a problem. 
because a day is like a thousand years, so it doesn't matter. So for 40 years, he learned he was a nobody. Uh, he, for 40 years, he learned he was a real somebody. Then for 40 years, he learned he was an absolute nobody. And then for the next 40 years, he learned that God takes nobodies and makes them somebodies. He'd failed badly. He'd tried it in his own strength and failed miserably, and God used him. You know, I could, I could regale you for hours with stories of how God has used me powerfully, building churches, seeing people saved, delivered, healed. It's literally, I could tell you stories for hours. I could probably talk for days on all my failures. I'm, I'm an absolute expert at failure. I fail more times than I can count. But God takes those who failed and gives them a function. And every single person here has been called to function in the body of Christ. And when I first heard as a young man this one body, many parts message, I went home. Well, if I'm part of the body, and I am, what part of the body am I? I want to figure out, what, what do I do? What, what's my calling? What part of the body am I? And I thought, am I the heart? No, I don't love people enough. Am I the eyes? No, I, I never see, I can't even find the butter in the fridge. Am I the feet, you know, shod with the shoes of the gospel? No, I, I never get anybody served. What part of the body am I? And the conclusion I came up with was, I'm the appendix. Because <laughs> nobody knows what the appendix is for. <laughs> you completely ignore it until it gives you trouble, and then you remove it as quickly as possible. <laughs> I thought, I must be the appendix. I thought I had no use. I thought I was just a failure. And God used me. And I want to tell you, you are part of the body and you're not the appendix. And by the Holy Spirit, you may, be able, you may even be in a place right now where, where it's moral failure or a failure of faith or, or, or you've tried ministry, whatever it is, and you just sat there going, yeah, but I failed. Thank God he's in the redemption business. Thank God he's in the restoration business. And you know, the thing about Jesus, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes watch these shows about car restorations, and they spend hours and hours and hours trying to restore a car as close to new as possible. Well, Jesus, in an instance, restores you better than you ever were. He doesn't restore you to showroom condition. He restores you back to greater than you could ever have been in an instant. And it doesn't matter if you failed, how badly you failed, or how many times you failed. All that matters is that you turn and say, use me now, Lord. And his spirit will come and use you. He wants to take us by spirit. He wants to fill us with his spirit to make us more like him and for us to fulfill his purposes. The incredible promise of Jesus, I'll tell you the truth. You will do greater things than I, said Jesus. Not you or you, but you. We will do greater things than, than Jesus. What does that mean? Well, 
Everything that Jesus did, every miracle, he did not his own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. He, Philippians 2 tells us he emptied himself and became obedient. And he said, I can only do that which the Father gives me to do. I can only do that which the Spirit empowers me to do. And we're in the, exactly the same boat. We can only do that which the, effectively, we can only do that which the Holy Spirit tells us and gives us to do. So we can prophesy. We can pray for the sick. We can raise the dead. We can do all of those things. But you know what's better than any of those? Leading somebody to salvation. This may seem a bit... Um, bit of a cruel statement. But if somebody comes to church in a wheelchair and you pray for them and they get out of the wheelchair, but they don't surrender their lives to Jesus, you've really not made that much difference in their life in light of eternity. Because eternity is a whole heck of a long time. And this life is fleeting like grass. And all you've done if you've seen somebody healed and not seen them saved, all that happens is they'll walk into hell instead of rolling into hell. Now, again, God may do a miraculous healing and then they spit in God's face. It happened to Jesus. It'll happen to us. It's not our... But you understand, what, what is our priority? What is our passion? And our passion, first and foremost, should be the loss and see them saved. And if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then there should be a fruitfulness about us. There should be a growth. There should be a reproduction. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then we should be a faithful people. Not afraid to preach the gospel. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. He didn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I can, I can teach it really well. I and mean, I'm a really good in fact. No, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel itself is the power of God to salvation. You can get it all twisted and do it all wrong and still God can be bigger than you and bring people into relationship with himself despite you, not because of you. But we've got to step out in faith instead of hiding in fear. We've got to have that Peter moment where we go from being ashamed to being unashamed. And then if we're filled with the Spirit and he's at work in us, we go from failure to function. We have a purpose and a destiny and an aim and a goal. Somebody phoned me this week and they said, Mike, um, I don't know who to ask this, but um, there's this kind of thing and I don't know where it's from and it's about man's end and what, oh yes, I think you're asking about the Westminster Catechism which asks the question, what is man's chief end? And the answer is to glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. How do we glorify God? We speak of his name. How do we speak of his name effectively? By allowing the spirit to work through us, by being filled to overflowing so streams of living water flow out of us. That there is a fruitfulness as we walk in faith and fulfill our God-given function. It is for your good that I go away, Jesus said to his disciples. For when I go, I will send the Spirit to you. I believe this morning the Holy, Holy Spirit is waiting to be poured out. I love reading about David being anointed. And David, who was out in the fields when Samuel was at his house, he'd been overlooked by everybody except God. And then when Samuel sees him, he says, this is the one. And he anoints David with oil, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And the, uh, 1 Samuel fifteen sixteen tells us this. That at that moment, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him in power. I love that description. It's like the Holy Spirit isn't like, mm, convince me, persuade me, twist my arm. There's a desperation to rush upon us in power and see our lives transformed. And when our lives are transformed, our families get transformed. When our families get transformed, our communities get transformed. When our communities get transformed, our city gets transformed. And if our city gets transformed... Our nation will be transformed. Is that too big a goal? I don't know. I don't know. But I'd rather aim for that <laughs> and see how close we can get. <laughs> but I can tell you this. That may seem too big. But I challenge each and every one of you this morning. Think of one person. Ask God to give you the name of one person right now. Just close your eyes. Close your eyes and ask the Lord to give you the name or face of one person that you can share the gospel with this week. Just one. That's not too big an ask, is it? Have you got a name? Have you got a face? Can you commit with me? I will pray and I will actively seek for an opportunity this week even if I have to phone this person out of the blue and say, I've got an important message for you, I'm going to do my utmost to share the gospel this week with that person. That's your purpose for this week. How awesome is that? <laughs> to see somebody's eternity change forever. Let's keep our eyes closed. We sang... A number of songs about the death of Jesus, about his crucifixion, thanking him that he would come, God himself would come as a man and allow himself to be killed, put in a grave, and then he would rise from that grave in order that we could have eternal life, in order that we could receive his life. And he says, 
All of those who obey commands, all of those who are in Christ have been filled with the Spirit. And that is actually the first step. All of this talk about being Spirit-filled and having the Holy Spirit come live in you and empower you and transform you, it has to start with the surrendering of our lives to Jesus and say, I have no purpose without you. I don't want to live for my priorities. I want to live for you. I, I, I repent. I'm sorry for the things I've done that displease you, and I want to live to please you from now on. I want to obey your commands. I want to obey you, and I want to be in right relationship with you. Come, send your spirit to give me new life. And if you've never done that before, this morning is the morning to do that right now. Don't delay. Don't be afraid. Dare the impossible and dare God to do the impossible for you and through you. And if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered to Jesus, you may have been to church, you may tithe, you may pray, you may be nice to old ladies, you may be a good person in your own eyes, but you've never surrendered to Jesus. Now is the time to do that. And if you know you need to do that, I would love you to just raise your hand right where you are just to let me know, not to embarrass you, but just so you can acknowledge him before men. Anybody who needs to respond? Okay. I know it's a scary thing to do in amongst a group of weirdos like this. We are weirdos. So if your heart is beating and you know you need to respond, but you just couldn't bring yourself to raise your hand, please come speak to me later. It would be awesome to chat to you. And then for the rest of us. You know, I could easily say, who wants more of the Holy Spirit? And it's kind of a thing that everybody must stand for, right? And I don't want to do that. But I want to say this. If you feel the Holy Spirit has been convicting, challenging, and chasing you this morning, and you know you need to respond to him, not to me, but he's doing something in you, and you're saying, yes, I need that fruitfulness. Yes, I need your faith. Yes, I need to put that failure behind me and walk into my function. If, you, if that is something that the Holy Spirit is, is, is really at work in your heart doing right now, I would love you to stand because I'd love to pray for you because I really believe that there will be a, a pouring out of the Holy Spirit with, with faith, with gifts, with forgiveness, with restoration, and with fruitfulness over many lives. If you know you need to respond, Stand up right now, and I'd love to pray for you. Thank you.